0: Welcome to the Mercy Comments Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. Uh, My name is Nick. Uh, It is my privilege uh, to bring the Word of God to you this morning. And um, as we said, we start our Genesis series and we have titled it Like Father, Like Son. We could probably also title it Our Spiritual Family of Origin. Uh, I am a Zimbabwean by birth. I am South African by accent. I am American by choice, and I'm Greek by the grace of God. So, um, so I have a unique mixed family origin. My dad, uh, when he was 14, punched his school teacher and had to run away. From um, this is a true story. had to had to run away. He went from this tiny little uh, Greek village called Pirgosithomis to Athens. Uh, he started working there with his older brother. My mom, from the age of 16, was working because her grandma wouldn't let a girl go to college. And, uh, and so my family history is one of get her done, get her done. If something's hard, you work harder. If uh, things are stacked against you, weak people ask for help. And so one of the things that it's done is it's shaped the way that I respond to my environment. Uh, When we moved to South Africa in 1980, um, I was seven years old, and from the age of eight, I was a latchkey kid. Who even knows what a latchkey kid is these days, right? So you had the key tied around your neck, and you would go to school, walk to school, walk back, you would open the door, you'd get yourself lunch, you'd do your homework. And um, there were a lot of good things that 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 family history gave me, is that I, I grew up competent. I grew up um, not scared of challenges, but I also have trust issues, you know. I also also am someone that has control issues. And part of going through this series is understanding that not only does our physical family have a way, um, or not only does our physical family and their ways of relating and their ways of living affect the patterns in our lives, But also our spiritual ancestors, not only Adam and Eve, but our spiritual ancestors affect the way in which we respond. Um, And as I said, like father, like son is not a series that is gender based. The Bible, when the Bible says son of, it literally means from the loins of. And I'll rather go with son of than keep saying from the loins of. It means a child of God. So anytime you see in scripture, other than the fact that it is saying Sean was a son of, when it says son of, it means born of God. Genesis is not a, um, not a how and what book. It's a who and why book. Now, Genesis does tell us how things came to be and what the process of that was, but the point of Genesis was to show us who and why. Who God is, who humanity is, and why there needed to be a um, covenant made with man in order for that, um, for that fracture to be healed. The revelation of God to us means that there is a specific response that humanity should give to God, and that response is faith and obedience. And yet humanity has responded with personal autonomy and saying, no, I'm going to do things my way. And this has drastic consequences in the context of the story of humanity. And we'll see throughout Genesis where sin, disobedience, faithlessness, even stupidity abound, there is. God's grace and mercy, compassion and kindness abounds even more. It's important for us to see from the very beginning that God is kind and gracious and compassionate and faithful and didn't suddenly become that with the incarnation of Jesus. That in the midst of our faithless, rebellious, wicked and silly fathers and mothers, we know that Yahweh remains faithful, continuing to be a rescuing and blessing God because of the covenant that he initiated with his people. And so we are going to start this morning um, looking at at the fathers of our faith, which is in Genesis 12. But I'm going to do a bit of a recap with regards to Genesis 1 to 11. What happened in Genesis 1 to 11? And I'm going to look at it through the lenses of failures. And these four failures are the failures of innocence, of exclusion, of extermination, and determination. So the failure of innocence. We know the story well. We know that Adam failed in this context. That innocence is not a guarantee of godliness and sinlessness. How many of you parents will testify to the fact that your innocent little child is not sinless? Naivete can be manipulated, and we know the story of how Adam and Eve were manipulated by the devil to actually become like God instead of worship God. It was in this process with what we, what we now call the fall of man, where sin was manifest. Can you imagine a world without sin? It was in this moment where sin was manifest. Then we have the failure of exclusion. So what happened is Adam and Eve were then um, excluded from the garden. They were expelled from the garden, and then they started to live their lives outside of the blessing, outside of the garden, and Cain and Abel were born. And we know the story that Cain killed Abel. And this is a story of how um, the idea of a harsh penalty and the idea of exclusion is not enough to stop sinfulness. One one would think that Adam and Eve, having um, experienced the exclusion and the judgment of God, would be able to their kids, to explain to their kids, this is important. This is important how you live. But sin multiplied through the rest of the people. What happened next was was God said, okay, if this is not working and sin is continuing to multiply in humanity, what I'm going to do is just start over. Um, And so we have the huge flood, the, the extermination of everything that was considered evil, but sin didn't drown in the flood. Sin was riding in the ark. In the lives of Noah, his wife, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, there was a new earth, but it was the same old humanity. And when they walked off the ark, sin also walked off the ark. We have Ham's failure where where Noah fails himself and he plants a vine and then he drinks of the fruit of the vine and then he gets completely drunk and he takes off all his clothes. And, you know, as an aside, I don't know why you would do that if you were drunk, but that's what he did. You know, he just decided to take off all his clothes and he was laying down and his one son came in and he saw this And he called everyone else and he said, hey, come and look. And he exposed his dad's nakedness. And the other son came and wouldn't even look and walked backward and put a cloth over his father. There's so many um, kind of foreshadows in terms of the covering of sin and covering of nakedness. But even then, what we are introduced to is the idea that there is no sin that is trivial. Now, we think that it's the big sins. It's, it's murder and adultery and theft. And it's those kinds of things that God came to deal with. And He's saying, no, I came to deal with every single sin, even your lack of self-control and disrespect. And so we see in the story of Noah that sin survived. And then in Genesis 11, we see the failure of determination. This is where Babel fails. And, and everyone comes together and they have this brand new technology, bricks. And so what we're going to do is we're going to build this amazing thing, and we are going to make a great name for ourselves. It's important for you to remember that because ultimately that's why humanity failed, because they want a great name for themselves. They don't want to make God's name great. And so I say we are going to make a great name for ourselves, and we're going to build this tower, and we're going to reach up into the heavens. We're going to be like God, and God completely frustrates that and He changes their language, and they aren't able to communicate, and they scatter around the world. So if none of that works, if if the idea of innocence doesn't work, if if the idea of expulsion doesn't work, if if the idea of extermination doesn't work, and, and if the idea of, okay, we're going to do it ourselves doesn't work, what works? The only thing that works is God, Yahweh, saying, I will create, establish, and maintain a covenant. With the people, and I will bring them back to myself so they can worship me, and so that, that people can see the kind of God that I am. The formation, establishment, and testing of the promise is part two of Genesis. So, Genesis part one is 1 to 11, Genesis part two is 12 to 50, and 12 to 25 is the story of Abraham. 25 to 36 is the story of Isaac and Jacob, and 37 to 50 is the story of the 12 sons of Jacob. Now, when someone makes a promise, it's not the promise that is important. If someone came to me and said, I will give you a Ferrari, um, as much as I would appreciate that, the reality is, what am I thinking? Can you do that? That's what I'm thinking. A promise is easy to make, right? Right? Yeah, Nick, I'll give you a Ferrari one day when, when this happens. When we look at a promise, the thing that is the most important thing is not the actual promise itself. What am I, am I going to do? It's the promiser. What kind of person is this person? Is this person lying? Or is this person not just lying, but is the, this person saying, hey, I'd like to do something, but doesn't have the ability to do that? And as we go through Scripture we'll be able to see that not only is God's promise more than we could ask or think or imagine, but the Promiser is more loving, kind, compassionate, strong, sovereign, and powerful than we could ever imagine. But Abram, or Abram as he is known there, wow, he is a mess. He is an old, lying, insecure, emotional, fearful, manipulative, moon-worshipping pagan. That's what he is. And as we go through Scripture, we'll see that. So why are we looking at that? Because when we look at the grandfathers of our faith, we can see where some of our tendencies come from. And we can see what it takes to change those tendencies. God is so kind and so gracious that He decides that He's going to choose Abram. And out of all of the people that are there, He decides to put His affection on Abram. And in Genesis 12, verse 1 to 10, we read this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. We skip down. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abraham passed through the land to a place at Shechem at the oak of Moreh. At that time... Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negev. Now there was a famine in the land, so Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe. In the land. You know, a life of responsive faith, we, we all like to believe that if I respond to God in faith, everything will be fine. And, and what we see here is that as Abram, as he's known there, and I'm going to use Abram and Abraham interchangeably. Later on, God changes his name. So think Nick and Nicholas, okay? Um, but as, as Abram says, okay, okay, God, uh, I'm going to respond, he sees two things. Uh, Three things, actually. The one, the land that God promises to him is already overrun by Canaanites. So he goes to that land, and there are Canaanites in the land. And secondly, there's a famine. So there's no food, and Sarah is barren. So everything that God said to him, he's probably sitting there and thinking, what am I, really? You promised a lot of things, but I'm not seeing this happen. And so for us, there's a sense in which Oftentimes, when we have responded to God's invitation and to God's promise, there's a sense in which we know the promises of God in terms of peace and joy and hope and all of those things. And there are times we don't experience those things. And what we do is we start to question the promise and the promiser. and We start to question, God, are you actually able to do those things? God, is that, is that promise real? And that's something that continues throughout our lineage. The other challenge is that our spiritual family of origin means that we can be these three things. We can be impatient, impulsive, and short-sighted. You know, when uh, I was dating Karin, um, Karin's uh, mom and dad had this anthracite heater. Now, in, uh, in Africa, there's no central air, so she had, um, what's that? Mm-hmm. Or oh, heating, which is air, I guess. That's just heated. But um, I know no one is on my side right now. <laughs> you are, thanks, Michael. Okay. All the other ladies are going to drop their hydroflasks in protest. You know. <laughs> oh dear. Okay. So um, the thing about an anthracite heater is that it's similar to coal. Um, but it is very, very difficult to start because, it, because it's super low-burning. Um, and so what had happened is the anthracite heater had gone out, and, um, and I decided I was going to start this. And um, so we had tried multiple times. It failed. So I, I got impatient. And I decided that I was going to get... This is a true story, literally. I was going to get gas from my car, because I, I, I couldn't get any gas from my car, siphon from my car, into this little plastic bottle, and I would pour the gas, I mean the, the, the petrol, um, into the heater, and, um, and then I would, I would light a match, and then that should do it. So, um, why are you guys laughing? Half of you would have done the same thing, right? Okay. Half of you men would have done the same thing. Okay. And so what happened was, uh, what I didn't know is that because anthracite is so slow burning, is that it actually was on. And as I I poured the petroleum, the gasoline, into the heater, it exploded, came and started a little fire in the plastic um, container. And I was like, that's okay. No big deal. I just blew it and blew the extra gas onto the carpet, and it started a little fire. <laughs> I did start a fire. You know, Just not in the fireplace. We get impatient when God says, I'm going to do something, and He doesn't do it according to our timetable. And this is something that we will cover next week more specifically when we look at how Abraham and Sarah decided that they were going to fulfill God's promise of a son. You know, patience is much, much harder to implement when someone says to you, you are going to receive something. You know, parents, don't ever tell your children you're taking them to Disneyland next month. Don't do it. Don't do it because every day they will wake up and they will say, are we going? Is it next month yet? It's so much harder to exercise patience when the promise has already been spoken. And that's what what had happened to Abraham is God had spoken this promise. This is what your life will look like. This is the kind of blessing that I will pour on you. And Abraham is like, is it today? Can we do it tomorrow? Is it next month? I'm seeing all these things happen. And he becomes impatient, but he also becomes impulsive. And so one of the things that we see is that that with our impatience and our impulsiveness, Abraham sees, okay, look, there's a famine here. What am I going to do? And this is important. Abraham decides to go down to Egypt. God does not tell him to go to Egypt. Abraham decides to go down to Egypt. And on the surface, it looks, you know, look, there's no food here. There's a famine. There's no famine in Egypt. I will do that. Our impatience is... Or rather, our tendencies are much more difficult to reign in in a, in a godly way when this solution seems logical. No one would look at Abraham and say, Oh, you acted in a faithless way. No, Abraham would say, I think I was pretty wise in that. What it doesn't say, and we'll see this as the story of Genesis and our forefathers continues, what it doesn't say is that Abraham inquired of God, or Abraham asked God. Um, and so that's part of the problem with our impatience, and our impulsivity because the problem with impatience is that it leads to more problems and so we go down to Egypt in Genesis 12 verse 11 and it says when he was about to enter Egypt he says to his wife Sarai I know that you are a beautiful woman or I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance this is good Abraham this is a good start <laughs> good job good job and then it just goes bad And then when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. This this is the thing about fear, right? What, What happens when we're fearful is we globalize. It's going to be 10 times worse than I think it's going to be. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say that you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life will be spared for your sake. Wow. Wow. Talk about shameful manipulation and selfishness. My goodness. Guys, don't try this at home. Okay? Let me tell you. For those of you that were thinking, no. No. If you're going to say you're beautiful, period. That's it. Don't ask for anything else. Don't say anything else. Say it often. But there's no rider to that. What happens in our impulsivity, our selfishness and manipulation comes out. Now, the Bible doesn't explicitly say that Abrams and Sarai's relationship was affected by that. But I have to think, how could it not be? You know, how could it not be affected by that when let's say they're sitting down and he's saying to Sarai, man, I need you to trust me with something. Can you imagine what you're saying? The way I trusted you with Pharaoh, you sent me off to live with another man so that you would be okay. Wow. See, the thing about our impulsiveness is that it has consequences that we can't even fathom at that moment. The only thing that Abraham was thinking is that man, look, I don't want them to kill me so that Pharaoh can take them. Now, this is the kindness of God. I can't believe God's kindness in this sense, even when Abraham behaves in this way. And you would think that God would say, you know what, I am going to show you, Abraham. I'm going to make sure that Pharaoh does come and put you in chains and takes your wife. He protects Sarah. And God puts a plague on Pharaoh's house To the point at which Pharaoh says, what on earth is going on? Why didn't you tell me she wasn't your sister? And, And Sarai returns to Abraham. Isn't it amazing of the covering protective nature of our God? That even when we intentionally sin and try and cover that up, God's grace comes and protects us in those ways. When we are prone to fear, we are either immobilized or we make rash decisions. And, and some of you are more in that camp where, where you're immobilized. And we've, we've told the story before of how Karin and I deal with fear. And Karin just hides. And, and I just fight. And there's this, there's, there was one time where Karin tried to give me a, fight, a fright. And I turned around like this. And she got the fright of her life, you know. And so when, when we're exposed to fear, we're either immobilized or we make some rash choices or decisions. Sometimes they seem logical. Sometimes we look at the call of God and the lifestyle that we'd like to have. And we make these choices to go down to Egypt. Sometimes we look at what could be dangerous and we make choices that we know are not. Look, th- this, is the, this is the thing. is Technically, there was a measure, a tiny measure of truth to Abraham saying that Sarai was his sister. In the sense that they kind of descended from a, a similar family tree. And sometimes what we do is we we take that, well, technically, this is not a lie. Technically, in some way, this is the truth. But that's what happens when we're faced with obstacles. We become impulsive and impatient. We also become short-sighted. And because of our first Mother Eve, we trust our eyes more than we trust God's Word. Genesis 3 verse 6 says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes or pleasing to the eye. And that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of the fruit and ate it. And also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And we know how that worked out. So we're at the point of the story where Abraham now leaves Egypt and returns to Canaan. And he, he returns with Lot who's, who's his family member. And God has blessed them so much. They have so much livestock um, that the two of them have to separate because there's not enough grazing pasture for, um, for both of them to be there. And then we see the same short-sightedness in Lot. In Genesis 13, verse 10, we read that Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well-watered everywhere like the Garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. This was before the Lord had destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself All of the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. And Abraham settled in the land of Canaan, while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked and great sinners against the Lord. Lot, like Eve, chooses with the eyes of the flesh, and and what happens, and some of the stuff that we've inherited from our spiritual fathers is that. We think that what we see is better than what God has for us. And we have this short-sighted view. We look with the eyes of flesh and Lot says, okay, this looks amazing. And so he begins to live near people that they know are wicked. Eve looks at this fruit and says, man, this fruit looks amazing. And even though God said that, I think I'm going to reach out for that. We look at that in the, in the context of sexual purity. God has said that the way for human flourishing is, is expressive sexuality in the context of marriage. But this fruit looks so good to me right now. And God, you're preventing me from taking pleasure in that. We look at that in the context of generosity. God says that generosity, financial and otherwise, will multiply joy to you we look at this fruit of actually saying, no, I actually I, I, I want to eat the fruit of withholding. And we become short-sighted and we make poor decisions. Again, God's grace is astounding. We don't have time to go into this. But Abraham rescues Lot twice from his bad decisions. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying make as many bad decisions as you want because God will rescue you. There are consequences. There are consequences that we would need to live through. But the reality is this, is that every time I make a decision, I come before God, I seek counsel with my friends and leaders, and then I say this to God, God, I am so confident because I know that in my heart, even if I make a poor decision, your grace covers me. Your grace is overwhelming. I've made horrible decisions in my life. Not on purpose. Some of them have been on purpose. Some of them have been like that. No, I'm going to do that. Most of them have been like, wow, I didn't see that coming. And God has been so kind and so gracious and so forgiving to me. Fear and doubt do not scare God off. Let's read Genesis 15. Sometime later, the Lord spoke to Abram in a vision and said, Do not be afraid, Abram. I will protect you. I will be your shield and your reward will be great. Or I will be your very great reward. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit my wealth. You have given me no descendants of my own, so one of my servants will be my heir. Then the Lord said to him, I'm done with you you know what, this was a big mistake, I'm going to start with someone else. No, he says, no, your servant will be your heir, for you will have a son that will come from your own, who will be your heir. And the Lord took Abram outside and said to him, look up into the sky, count the stars if you can, that's how many descendants you will have. And you would think that would be enough for him, right? If God said to me, just come here, in fact, if God said to me, just come here, that'd be over, it'd be enough, you know? Come here, look at the stars in the sky, and this is how many your descendants will be. And Abram, Abram says, uh, how will that be? No. He says, Abram believed the Lord. And the Lord counted him as righteous because of his faith. And this is a scripture that is consistently repeated throughout both the Old Testament and the New Testament, which basically says this, the core of our faith is that we believe that God can do what He said He was going to do. That is the core of our faith. Then the Lord told him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land as your possession. But Abraham replied, O sovereign Lord, how can this be? How can I be sure that I will possess it? There's still fear. There's still doubt. The Lord told him, Bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, and a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And so basically what he tells Abraham to do is there was a, um, a covenantal ritual that Abraham and the people that were reading this initially in Genesis would have recognized. And it was this ritual, is you would take animals and you would sacrifice them and you would cut them in half and then you would lay the left side on this side and the right side on this side and then you would walk between these animals. And basically the reason that you're doing that is that you're saying, if I don't fulfill my oath, if I don't fulfill my promise, then whatever happened to these animals can happen to me. So in other words, if I promise you that I will do what I said I was going to do. And so Neil and I will have this, this promise. Okay, are you, are you promise to do that? I promise to do that. We both walk through this blood sacrifice. But you know the amazing thing about this blood sacrifice? The core and foundation of our faith? Abraham didn't walk through it. Let's look at what happened. He cut each animal down the middle, laid the halves side by side. He did not, however, cut the birds in half. Some vultures swooped down to eat the carcasses, but Abram chased them away. And as the sun was going down, Abram fell into a deep sleep, and a terrifying darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to Abram, You can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. And then in verse seventeen it says, after the sun went down, darkness fell. Abraham saw a smoking firepot and a flaming torch pass between the halves of the carcasses. In other words, the only person that bound themselves to an oath, a covenant, of promise, was God. That Abraham was asleep. In other words, he's saying it doesn't. I'm not relying on your response. Uh, It's wise not to rely on our response, but it is deeply, deeply gracious and merciful. Right from the beginning, the covenant with our grandfather of faith, God was saying this, is my love and affection is so set upon you that I will pursue you. And that even in your weakness, knowing you are weak and knowing you are sinful, that I will do everything I need to, to return you to myself. I will do it. It's not about you. If this was me, I would have said, you know what? I'm just going to find someone else. Someone more reliable. Someone more helpful. Someone that is not as messed up as Abram. But our fear and our doubt doesn't make God angry. And it doesn't make him insecure about who he is. What he does, and you'll see this through Genesis, is he constantly reminds Israel, who is formed out of the family of Abraham, Who I am. Even God's name is I am who I am. And so often God starts with saying, I am the God who. I am the God who. And every time he meets with Israel in all of these moments that we'll see throughout Genesis, he says, I am the God who. And when we look back on our lives and we say, God, my my life is not panning out the way that I expected. Even that some of my friends said. You know, some of my friends said that, that actually making a declaration of faith in Jesus would be the, the best thing that I could do. And yes, it is. But suddenly, my life is not any different in the way that I've experienced pain and hurt and bitterness and anger. And even some of my responses aren't changing in the way that I'm expecting them to change. Well, there is hope. There is hope because even though we are sons of Abraham, we are also sons of God. And so we are sons of of Abraham. Galatians 3 verse 6 to 9 says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's a direct quote from this Genesis passage. Paul is talking to a Gentile church. Gentile means a non-Jewish church. Because what happened is, as, as people kind of looked back at the story, they basically said, okay, if you are a physical descendant of Abraham, if you are Jewish, and if you can prove that lineage, then the promises of God apply to you. And Paul is saying, that is not true. Look at what Paul says. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So those of us that don't have a Jewish lineage are equally blessed blessed. And that's what Paul is saying. We have been given a covering of righteousness because Jesus' blood covers our sin. We have a righteousness that is not earned or produced by the way in which we act. It is by grace alone that we've been saved. And this righteousness does invite us to trust, does invite us to have faith, does invite us to exercise obedience. There is response this weird little passage that says it says you know as the as the carcasses were laying on on the left and the right and some vultures came down and um, and started eating it and then Abraham shooed them away let me tell you commentators have written multiple books about that right and so the idea is like well why is that in there is that important and one of the commentators said, and this is what I think it is, is there is a role for us to play. The role is not necessarily this, this kind of, okay, I will do this and then God will do that. But as the vultures descend to take away the blood sacrifice, one of the things that we need to do is shoo away the idea, the scavengers that say we do not need this. That say this is unnecessary. This is too brutal. Uh, That the idea of God judging sin in Jesus is not actually what God had in mind. We were just kind of lost children that needed to be invited back into the fold. No, we will see, and we have seen, that we were lost children. But there was also a disease that we were carrying that was not exterminated by the flood. And that disease can only be healed through the shed blood of Jesus Christ and His broken body. And so when the vultures descend, we've got to shoo them away. And we say, no, this is the way to reach a sense of peace with God. The only way, this is what the Bible says, the only way there can be forgiveness of sins is through the shedding of blood. And it started way back then. We are sons of God. Galatians 3 verses 26 to 29 says, For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. In other words, it isn't the idea that you happen to be Jewish because of your family line. It's because you decided to say, yes, Jesus, I'm saying yes to you. And that your sacrifice took away my sin. And because of that, I choose to be buried the way that you were buried in baptism and be raised again to life the way that you were raised again to life. That is what makes me a child of Abraham. For as many of you were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. For there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. The joy that we live in, that Abraham's direct family did not live in, is that we are not just sons of Abraham. We are sons of God. And so we do not just share this lineage of insecurity and fear and impulsiveness and impatience, we also now share, those of us that have put our faith in Jesus, in the midst of doubt and fear, we have also inherited a faith that enables us to experience faith and hope and joy and peace because of the lineage of Jesus. And sometimes this is a struggle. And sometimes this is difficult. So Enid is lying there in the hospital saying, God, what is going on? What is happening? And yet she can respond out of a sense of hope and peace and joy because she knows that she's a daughter of Abraham. She's a daughter of the living God. Our righteousness comes through a child of the promise. Yes, it comes through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob. But this is our hope. Our hope is not in a child of the promise that has perished our hope is in a child of the promise that is still alive. That Jesus was seeded from Abraham. And it means that He came through the line of Abraham. And this is the most important reason why we can believe that our family origins can shift and change because of our allegiance to Jesus, is that He is still alive. Not like Abraham. He still works in us through the grace of His Holy Spirit. He still helps us in times where we want to be impatient but He's able to extend His patience to us through the Holy Spirit. We have this nature in us and our natures have been changed so that our nature is one of hope and peace and joy and patience. And we can access that joy and peace and patience and hope in times when we would rather or potentially act with impatience and hopelessness. Band, you can come up. This is a Kind of difficult thing to try and set the scene for this morning, um, to try and cover 12 enormous chapters with one ultimate message to say this is that everyone in this room has the potential to become a child of the promise. Many of you are a child of the promise. For many of you, there is a sense in which you understand that God has made His covenant with you through Jesus Christ. And that you have exchanged your sin and shame, your guilt and fear, and that has been placed on Jesus as He was crucified. But this morning, you can become a child of that promise. This morning, you don't need to be Jewish. You don't need to be Greek, although that's better. You don't need to be anything other than say, God... I'm tired of relying on myself. It's exhausting. And it doesn't work. And I'm choosing to exchange my family origin of Abraham to my family origin of Jesus. I, yes, I am a son of Abraham in the sense that Jesus came from Abraham, but I'm ultimately a son of the living God. And that within me lives the Spirit of God that is able to say no to ungodliness. So this morning, maybe you're a child of the promise maybe this is a question that you need to ask yourself is am I willing to follow God generally as a Christ follower but specifically Abraham I want you to do this Anthony I want you to do this are you willing to follow God generally and specifically and believe that he will protect you are you willing to follow God generally and specifically and believe that he will provide for you Are you willing to believe that what God says is best for you is actually best for you? Let's sing. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.